press record. We are recording this. So if you want to, um, you can say any profanities. You can say anything you want on this podcast because there's no censorship. Most people are explicitly like quite rude on it. Well, I'm not such a good girl anymore. <laughs> I swear now. Do, do you? <laughs> I do. Oh, Lord. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember you being this goody two shoes when mm-hmm. I first met you when you were, I think you were 21 when I first met Probably, you. Probably, yeah. And now you're not even slightly. No, um, that would have been about 10 years ago. And yeah. now, yes, many, many things change. Many things have changed. And look, I feel like you've come out of your shell, though. <laughs> I've come out of many things. <laughs> so these are the things we do podcast. A podcast about film, life, television, culture, mental health, and all of that fun, jazzy stuff. Today I've got my friend and special guest, Alex Chambers. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. <laughs> I am glad I am welcome. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. That's good. I'm good. I'm excited. Are you? Oh, that's yes. good. Um, so before... Before everyone kind of gets into like you know the nitty gritty of our questionnaires, mm-hmm. tell everyone in the audience a bit about yourself and who you are and what you kind of like do in life. Sure, <laughs> in, in life. In life, what do I do? Um, I actually kind of joke whenever anyone asks me that, and I say it depends on what day you ask me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I suppose like a lot of creative people, there's the things we do, the things we want to do. And the things that we do for money. Yes. Um, <laughs> and sometimes if we're lucky, all those things overlap. Yes. So today I was doing a slime workshop in a shopping center with a bunch of kids, which was fun, which I also took this week to get away from my desk. Cause oh, really? I have been working from home for a captioning company oh, yes. since COVID started. Um. I used to work for them a little while ago and then as things were slowing down for COVID, I contacted someone who I knew was still there and was like, hey, need any people? And he was like, yes, can you start like now? Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, they they just went through such a busy period and I was so lucky to just go straight into work for COVID, um, which was amazing. Um, And then I, yeah... Since going to school, I have done like nannying and babysitting. I've done shows. I've started to produce, um, which I can't even really get that specific with because I started learning how to produce theatre things. And then as COVID came around, a friend wrote a radio drama. So I've started kind of doing that. And then someone else has written a short film and they're like, do you want to produce that? And I'm like, I've never produced a short film before, but I want to learn. <laughs> like, Go for I'm it. Just gonna, I'm just going to ask people and find out what to do. And um, yeah, so creatively I love to perform the mm. most, but I think like a lot of other creative people, they're like, I would rather work in my industry yes. somewhere. So that's where the producing has come in um, because I feel like I'm – reasonably organized and I like to kind of make things happen and if I'm really lucky sometimes I'm in the things I'm producing so <laughs> it's sort of like sometimes a little bit of all the columns come together and you're like ah yeah um, producing though is like one of those sort of mystic arts that no one quite understands yeah and uh you know, even the most experienced producers probably don't understand like how everything to get comes together they don't teach it no. Like if you want to be a director or an actor or a videographer or a cinematographer or an editor or whatever, there's courses for all of those things. 
But there isn't really a producer's course. No. I mean, I suppose at film school you'd learn to produce yes. as well. But, like, you, for theatre, they don't teach producing. You kind of just do, do produce. <laughs> you yeah. do produce it. Um, it's, it's, it's not a, like, being. It's a doing. It's just a doing career yeah. choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find, like, with producing, it's always, like, and I think it's just something you end up doing. You always kind of fall into it mm. um, because when you're creative and you're a bit stuck in wanting things to happen, you end up producing in a way because yeah. you want to organize. Mm. And that is kind of like where the trajectory goes. It's And I think the one misconception about producing is people think it's all finance. Think People think it's all like just money and organizing money and where mm. money goes. A lot of the time it's actually dealing with people and, yeah. all, and the other side is dealing with email chains <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and true. telling everyone where to be at what time. And there's kind of like a conversation between like you, the director, the first, like whether you do a, f- a short film, it's a first AD or, you know, an assistant director or whatever. And all of you are kind of like talking in this bubble mm. to kind of organize everything and then it all sort of follows through. But there is always like questions as producers that you might never get asked and then they hit you all on the day and everyone goes, oh, I don't know, and, you know, and like yeah. you should have asked me these questions ages ago. <laughs> and then the other side of the coin is like sometimes you're super organized, but even, you know, as a producer, your role is kind of like to adjust to everyone's needs and wants and yeah, like worries. <laughs> it's... Not a glamorous job. Well, yeah, not really. <laughs> Sometimes it can be, and I like, I like aspects of it, and I definitely think that as well, especially when it comes to something like theatre, mm. that no matter how organised you are, there's always a point where you're like, there's something that you planned to do that will not get done before opening yeah. night. Always. There's always something. So you've got to... Be super organized, but also be able to let go as well. That's where like, I feel like the balance between organization and creativity has to come in and just be like, let the art be the thing. Yeah, let it let it shape, let it do its um, do itself, which yeah. is kind of um, which is funny when you watch directors and they go, oh no, I need to like you know shape this thing, and you're kind of like, no, you. There was a great thing that David Lynch actually said, which is you are guiding the story. Yeah. You're not actually shaping the story. You're just guiding. Mm. The, everyone through this sort of journey together because you can't exactly change it when it's kind of got a structure already and it's like it's a very strange like concept for people to sort of grasp but you kind of have to understand where the story originates from and what it means and all these things that are actually in no one's control yeah um it's, art form is a very strange thing um to tell a story yeah um but it was so you did acting so predominantly acting was like when yeah. we first met acting was pretty much the only thing you wanted to do uh, yes. which was i met you when i was about 18 you were 21 god that feels like a long time ago <laughs> yeah, um does. and we worked together on a short film that n- kind of never went anywhere but the, so sad i know I really we both like really, that. I, I really <laughs> liked the story and it was a very like long thought out story and i'd actually like the more i think about it the more i think that would be other Fun to do was a radio play, like a, a huge ass like story, ten episodes of a few seasons long, just about time travel. And the other side of the coin is I, I've watched so many shows that kind of took that format later, and I'm like, does this feel like an original <laughs> idea anymore? There's, yeah. So there's always kind of like the, the storylines that you kind of like. Um, you don't know if they'll work as well when you think about them when you're 18. But I do love the idea 
that was originally like the idea of someone being out of time, just, you know, out of their own element yeah. um, and non-existing anymore. So I think that was cool. But it, yeah, we met through that. We And then sort of, yeah, we stayed in contact for 10 years, which just like feels insane. Yeah. Um, but, you know, between that, both of us have actually gone through dramatic, dramatic changes as people as yeah, well. For which sure. which <laughs> Which, you know, in our shells, in our, you know, like closed off from the world. Mm. Um, the, there is something, there are things that I kind of like always go back to, which is like looking back at ourselves back then, I don't think either of us knew who we were no. at all. No. And Not kind of had a little bit. No. Nah. <laughs> and now we sort of know who we are. It's better. It's more guided. But there's still an element of like I, you never fully understand who you are. Yeah, I feel like I'm definitely owning it a bit more. Yeah. Like I'm feeling more more in control, more authentic, more more towards I don't know, like kind of yeah, knowing for myself what yeah. I want and things and I mean, thinking back then as well, like I had a pretty idyllic creative start, if I'm honest, like Yeah. I'm an only child, which meant I got the opportunity to go to a performing arts high school, went on to do theatre studies at university. Like, I'd been able to access any kind of lessons or classes or anything that I wanted to. And coming out of that world and then being like, wait, you don't just get to act all the time or you don't just get to sing. Like, there isn't an opportunity every second day like there is at uni or college or, you know, whatever when there's a Stedfords and performances and, you know, like even in my music classes they had a once weekly lunchtime session and you just kind of signed up for it and you got to perform. Like it was that simple. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that was a bit of an awakening in that respect at least. There's Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, there is a little bit of opportunity, opportunistic kind of attributes where you come when you're so young. Mm. And I want to say, you know, 10 years later, you know, it's always funny because like people just gain experience by, like, sort of weird milestones. But I think when you do come straight out of high school, you do have a very much a naive, naive how sense of things happen. Mm. And you go through education, you do things, and... And then when you come out of it, you're kind of like, well, what do I do now? And I think the one thing that, you know, the fact that you've done producing and the fact that you've done like all sorts of different roles now really showed that it was like you were also just doing things that you were intrigued by rather mm. than some people who just go, nope, if work doesn't come my way, I'm not interested. Like there are some yeah. people exactly like that yeah. who, um, you know, have nothing or no interest in other things except for their field um, mm. that they studied in. Uh, but I think with the other side of the coin, you know, it's it's unique and it's probably that's more of a unique situation than this is, where a lot of people actually have multiple interests and you know can across the board. Was was the other interest in um, not just acting when you sort of did acting for a while and you did theatre and stuff? When did you sort of like start to sort of like find interest in other things? Um. Good question. I mean, I remember distinctly, like when I was at school, I like with with in my performing arts classes, I had a a teacher who she was the head 
of the yeah. musical theater department and she said that you should always try everything in the theater or in the industry that you can because even if you learn that that's not something that you would like to do yeah you will at least a learn that and b learn to respect the people who do do that um because i think it doesn't matter if you're talking about film or stage there is crew who are often treated as less important when in fact they're probably more important and they yeah. put in more hours and they you know they're responsible for whether or not there is light on you or whether the curtain goes up or whether the set is in the right place or any of those things and so I think that stuck with me so when I went to university I didn't pick an acting degree yeah I mean partially I picked a theater degree because my hope was that I'd go I'd get that mystical life experience that they all talk <laughs> about um and then I'd go to somewhere like Whopper or NIDA or yeah you know, and and do that um but yeah going I went to UNE and did theater studies yeah. um and there was theater history and we learned dramaturgy and we learned directing and stage management and I took music classes as well and we did I think we did script writing as well we did everything that we possibly could and I think that did help because yes either I learned to respect those people was like I am never going to do that but man that job is hard yeah or kind of went oh yeah I, I could do a bit of that and part of the reason that that well, that teacher and now I think that that's a good idea is because that means you are infinitely more hireable in the industry. Yeah. Because if, you know, if you can't get a job as a performer or as a director or as a producer, but you also like writing, maybe someone will buy your script and that will get done. And definitely because I love, I love the arts. I love the industry, I'm like, I would much rather be doing that. Like, yeah, I even do extras work from time to time because I'm like, well, surely it's better to be on a set. Like I'm yeah. learning from being on that set rather than waiting tables or sitting behind a desk somewhere. I think that, I think that's also like something that people need to sort of understand as well mm. is every opportunity you get is, you know, you have to make something of that opportunity. Yeah. It's a little bit of... <laughs> A little bit of self-determination because a lot of people think that opportunities are like they're above something or they're mm -hmm. like, I love the fact that you still do extra work because I think that's great. Like anyone who wants to get into acting and all and has done acting before do extra work. It's it's actually like eye-opening because you meet a lot of other people. Mm. Um, yeah, there's just it's just also experiencing what people do on set all the time and that, yep. the logics and the stuff they have to deal with. Um, and also sometimes the really boring parts about filmmaking, which is there is a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, I did a I did a, an ad a couple of weeks ago and it was, I think initially they were like potentially a six-hour call and it ended up from, it ended up instead of being a six-hour call, we were there until six and we got there at seven in the morning. But. That's wow. also, you know, the sets were ready. There were people already to shoot by then. And there was like, surely I'm, I'm keen to see this ad when it comes out because there was so much stuff that like parts of sets that we didn't even shoot on and things like that. I'm like, this was potentially like a three day shoot for 
what, maybe a 30-second ad? Yeah. Which, you know, granted, it's a company that they probably will put out multiple versions of the same ad, but again, like... Oh, yeah. So much work goes into these things. The interesting thing about ads as well is how much money goes into ads. Mm. Like, the expense of ads for something that is a 30-second, you know, rinse and repeat, you see it so often, the amount of money that gets used in them is insane. Well, yeah, what did I, like, what was that we were there? There was probably, there was definitely more than 10 extras, I'd say probably close to 15, Mm. getting paid, what, 30-something dollars an hour, and we were there for at least 10, and, or like, I think it was 10, nine and a half or something by the time we were there, and then someone said that once, once you go over eight hours, it's time and a half, and once you go over 10, it's double or something, and so... Just the extras alone cost this company thousands of dollars, not to mention the three featured actors, a dog, um, <laughs> and the set. <laughs> like, yeah. the co- the, like two makeup artists I counted, at least two costume people, a whole bunch of people that I didn't even see who were sitting behind screens and, and things mm. that were all giving their various feedback on things, not to mention whatever it cost them to hire the space that they put the set in and... Wow. <laughs> I think that's kind of like um, always kind of like the, the mentality that people have with filmmaking as well is it's they think it's really like fast and quick and simple. It's actually not. Mm. Um, the best ever time was when I went to the ABC, the set, and they did promos. They did some promo material mm-hmm. and they did all of that when the crowd was there and this took 20 minutes of time that no one, the audience really didn't need to be there for. Mm. And it was more that mentality of just why are they doing that now than later or earlier. Yeah. Even like you're wasting, <laughs> wasting everyone's time. And they were two, over, two hours over time. So they, yeah. were, like, they wrapped at like midnight. Ooh. They were meant to wrap at 10. So it was like two hours over because they had these live performances and the performances, the guests, you know, and I didn't blame the, the guest musicians. They wanted to redo their sets because they wanted to be more comfortable with certain songs and, you know, give variations in a performance. Yeah. But a lot of it also was just like, guys, everyone wants to go to bed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a point where we we don't care enough to watch this four times and go, hey. Yeah, like, especially when you've got an audience who – are generally just interested people. They're not necessarily actors, so you can't necessarily yeah, get the same level of enthusiasm out oh, of them. Oh, 100%. It's one of those things that, you know, you just go to a set and you have to deal with the downside mm. of everything of that. Mm. Um, but in, in saying that, like, what do you find the best part about it all? Like, you know, what would you say to people who go, this is like 100 bucks and this is the best thing that I think about working on any set as any different role would give you? Um, good question. I think I think it's different actually depending on what I'm doing. Like I feel like my first love is stage. Yes. And I feel like I have no – there's no other feeling like being on stage and singing and being completely present and in that moment and – Yeah, it's just it's just a feeling that I think, you know, going back to saying about being more authentic and knowing who I am, like yeah. that is probably how I feel the most authentic, just standing, being present and performing. Um, I find sets exciting, honestly, when it's in terms of film. Like, 
sure, being on that ad for 10 hours, there were times where I was like, cool. And it was in the dark, so we all got really quite tired (laughs) sitting there. You feel like it's nighttime and you feel like you should be falling asleep soon. But watching all the things and it's I almost found it unfortunate that I couldn't necessarily see the the screens. Yeah. Because I would have actually been really interested to say sit out of the way, but behind the director and see what it is they were seeing and why why they make certain decisions and, you know, if they did the same shot a certain number of times, like what were they trying to get with that shot? Like Yeah. Was it just a series of angles or was it like something just wasn't right? Because there was a line that I was listening to that I was like, I feel like they have said that a lot. And yes, okay, occasionally there's a a mistake made or whatever and then that means there has to be a new take. But I was like, I feel like they've probably got a good 20 without any mistakes in it. So I'm going, like I'm just curious to know how things work and why they make those decisions and how – you know, they, they used blue screen in this in this ad and like how that works and how everyone's getting the lights quite just right to make all of that yeah work when they put the edit together and I think they even had some of the some of it like on the shoot because I walked past at one stage and I think they had you could effectively watch it live what it was gonna look like. It wasn't even necessarily waiting for the Oh wow. So they the had post. like an Im- Im- um, yeah, rough like like projection of what it could be superimposed. Yeah, like, cool. like they'd almost done that already and then they were coming to shoot so they could kind of play them back together or something. And I was like, I don't even know how they do that. That's so cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> magic. Magic. I think a lot of people assume that it's all magic and it's just the amazing ability of technology these days yeah, to sure. do a lot of pre-stuff and then render it with actually what you're filming so you kind of get an idea of what you need um which you know like animatics or you know like people coming in doing illustrations and storyboards and all this stuff to Mm -hmm. kind of get a sense of when you film something that you're not going there is nothing in front of me and i need to kind of like you know there's these things that love the term plates where you know you go to film set and you you record a plate Mm -hmm. which is just nothing in the frame and then you record the actors doing their stuff and then you you know, and yeah. then you have the two. So you, if you need to superimpose something, you've got that advantage of having a plate shot so you can kind of edit around where they were and, you know, like make it look like they're coming, like something's behind them as well and all this stuff. So it's just kind of amazing yeah. what people can achieve nowadays compared to what you could achieve in like the 50s and 60s where, you know, yeah. the green screen was just... <laughs> very uh, dirty. Yeah, it was very... It was a product of its time, so everyone was like in really stationary cars and you know, just a projection of wall behind them was just like, mm, this is us driving through traffic. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time now they actually have like... When they do film car scenes, they sometimes get people running past with lights to kind of simulate car lights movement. going and movement and stuff, oh. which I think is great. Yeah. Um, but that is a, te- te- a technique that people use now and yeah. all sorts of stuff. So there's there's ways that, you know, um, that, you know, filmmaking has made, you know, influences today. Mm. But also, yeah, there's magic to it as well, which kind of like oh, technology is, you know, moving so fast Yeah. that we can now like, I think the prime example is the Mandalorian, which you know, yeah. like Sky, um, uh, like Lucas. I think it was like Skywalker, 
um, sound and you know lights. I can't remember the name of the company, but um, they all did um, the Star Wars films, and now they've just got this amazing 3D like set where they can project <laughs> anything with an Unreal Engine of digital graphics, and it's just you know you can kind of set your world anywhere because yeah. you don't have to film in an actual location. You could just film safely in your studio. And especially during big COVID when that's a thing, yeah. um, you know, just having that ability to kind mm. of like secure yourself in this, you know, wonderful safe bubble, um, you know. Crazy. Awesome. <laughs> awesome, but crazy. But crazy. Yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of a feat, though. You've done a lot considering, like, you know, and you're about to do a radio play. Yes. Or, which is, you know, also another medium. That, um, are you in yeah. the radio play as well? I am, oh, yeah. there you go. So we've, we've recorded episode one. Mm-hmm, yes. We are waiting on news of a grant that I am. It's now, it's now more than a month after the proposed notification date, but I've been kind of checking just bit at a time. Like at first, I called to to say I just wanted to make sure that they were going to notify everyone because I'm like, have they notified the people who've got it and we're just sitting here waiting? Or yeah. So that it still hasn't come out. They're, they're still... I'm hoping that means that the decision was so difficult that it's comforting regardless of what the outcome is. Yeah. Because if we get it, then it's like, great, we we were one of the best of the submissions. And if we don't, we're like, well, hopefully they took so long because there were so many great submissions that it's okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um. But we... Yeah, my friend Louis, he wrote... He wrote the first episode and we kind of workshopped it and he, he rewrote it during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And then we thought, well, if this goes on indefinitely, it's something that we could theoretically do with everyone in their own bubbles. And then thankfully we could we then ended up at a recording studio in December um, doing episode one. And so now we're holding on to it because we think it has to be under embargo if we get the yeah. grant. So we don't want to release everything and ruin that. Um but yeah, it's it's just about ready to go. It's a mystery, mm. um, not quite not quite a murder mystery. <laughs> I always go to say a murder mystery, but at the beginning, no one's been murdered. And then later, <laughs> if people get murdered, many of people, many of people. Um, so it's yeah, it's called Grimlock, and yes. with any luck, the grant will mean we will make a series. Without the grant, we will still make a series. It will just be a slower process because yeah. you know money, and we want to try and pay people, but um. Yes, I'm narrating episode one. Oh, you're the narrator. I am. Yes, it's very exciting. Um, and they're about an hour each, are they? Yeah, about. I think episode ones come out at about fifty minutes. So. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm like radio plays. I love anyone who goes and listens to them. They're so much fun. Mm. Um, they're like little whispery voices in your ear, and especially like some of the cast who I know on it. I'm just yes. like mm, tantalizing yeah. voices. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, everyone has such great voices. We were so blessed because before we heard about this grant, we we're like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to make episode one, use that as our proof of concept, and yeah. hope that we can get people to give us money. And so all of these incredible people have donated their time. Like we haven't yeah. we haven't given them anything yet. Hopefully, if we are able to, we will. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know you know, Peter, okay. and he just, like, as soon as I read this and I was like, I, I turned to Louis, I'm like, I've got your guy. Yeah. And we held auditions and 
Louis trying to be cool and Peter leaves the room and he shows me his director notes and it basically just says, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like his voice is just awesome. He's got such a deep, beautiful, warming voice. I hope and, we're tantalizing people and, enough to come and listen to it when we release it. <laughs> I know. I know. And if this comes out and it's already released, who knows? Um, but if it gets to release to the wild blue yonder, check it out. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like those are the things that I think also radio has never died. Mm. And a lot of the, you know, the funny thing is my mom goes, who listens to radio? <laughs> um, but a lot of people still do. Like yeah. a lot of people, I listen to radio in the car mm. and, um, you know, I know a lot of people who listen to podcasts and that is essentially what radio is. Yeah. Um, so it's just taken a new form and a new medium. But yeah, it's, it's amazing what you can do with your voice. Um, people need to do more with their voices and mm. just like work hard at it because it is a challenge like you are enunciating it's it's you can't be physical like it's really weird because you can be physical with your own voice but you can't be quite it's it's such a mental hurdle Mm. um but it's something i'm falling in love with like and in terms of like i remember as a kid voice acting was like the number one that was like really interesting to me and now i'm an adult it's still very interesting (laughs) to me but it's just sort of nice knowing so many people i know Mm. are doing that avenue whereas like before it was kind of like you know no one was interested in it because it was just kind of like this avenue that no one wanted to take and now covid kind of like happened and everyone was like audio let's go yeah definitely um so yeah i mean like that's been great and i'm really looking forward to listening to it and hopefully there are more episodes coming out um but in saying that let's um let's chat about something which i do i'm going to go back to this right question in the beginning of the episode that i wanted to ask you (laughs) that we teased so we've known each other like now for 10 years Mm -hmm. uh both of us have changed a lot Mm -hmm. um (laughs) Mostly on me rather than you, but like, yes. <laughs> well, I look, okay, things have changed a bit for me, but like, I think in a lot of ways, I was probably more aware of what was going on mm. in terms of my world. Right. Um, I don't know how much of aware you were of like your world and when things started to kind of like become very obvious for yeah. you. When did stuff suddenly, you know, flip a coin and everything made more sense? So, only really like what are we talking, like three years ago now? Mm. Um, So, I mean, I guess looking back, it was, I'm not going to say obvious, but it was definitely, I'd been slowly moving away from everything I'd, I don't know, kind of set up as my structure. Yeah. Um, For everyone who doesn't know me, I grew up very christian very christian <laughs> very christian and ironic because my parents aren't very christian my- um yeah <laughs> which was which you know i remember when you were 21 you mm. were talking about your sort of dream future which was getting married to a nice guy and you know all these kind of like things and looking at you now is just completely the, <laughs> yeah not the, a thing not a, not a, the opposite of that at all um yeah so it was kind of like uh, yeah, kind of very much a, a not a shock, especially when I found out. Um, not a shock at all. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, like I said, I think there'd been there'd been clues and there'd been things that had come up that I repressed for a long time. And again, yeah. looking back at my past, I was like, oh, I probably had a crush on that girl, but definitely would never have admitted it. And if someone had said it to me yeah. younger, I probably would have freaked out and run back to church and been like, fix me, there's something wrong. Um, but yeah, like beginning of 
2018, I got cast in a play, which I absolutely adored. Like it's still, it's still a kind of highlight of my career situation, yeah. even though it isn't a particularly notable, like most people would never have heard of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I was cast as June Wright, who is an actual person. Really? Um, she is. She was. She was a crime writer in the 50s. Uh-huh. So for those of you who like crime novels, an Australian Melbourne-based woman called June Wright apparently outsold Agatha Christie in her time. That was a line that any of my castmates will have a laugh that I mentioned that. <laughs> Even Agatha Christie. Um and Sarah, who is now my partner, was cast as the main character from one of her books. So the ah. the play was called The Devil's Crest based on the book by the yeah. same name. And the playwright had interspersed the story, the murder mystery of the book with June's life. Yeah. So it was kind of one of those... I'm leading the story, but only Sarah's character actually, Marsh, actually interacted with me properly. Yeah. Um, unless the actors came out and were playing characters from my life when they were the characters of the novel. Yeah. Most of them didn't know I was there. Um, and yeah, so rehearsal number one was just Sarah and I, and I walked into the room and we just had this like, I feel like I know you moment. And it, went from there um (laughs) basically I was like what is and I knew like I knew from the first the first rehearsal I was like you have to be careful because this is the kind of girl that you could fall for yeah and there was kind of like safe things of like she was with someone at the time there was no actual cheating (laughs) there was no (laughs) actual I was very clear about the like I'm not here to bust anything up especially because here I am like not even really sure what's going on for me, like yeah. never having never having properly entertained the idea that I could change my life and decide to be with a woman if I wanted to or anything yeah. like that. I was like, while I'm still figuring this out, I am not going to just boldly walk up to someone and be like, break up with your girlfriend for me and then be like, oh, I'm freaking out and leaving. Yeah. Like, I did not want that to happen. Um but yeah, it got kind of more and more apparent the more I got to know Sarah that I was like, this is something I'm going to have to seriously consider. And I mean, even before that moment with the plebiscite and with yeah a lot of stuff, I'd, I'd been thinking for a long time, even though I came from a church background that was saying that anything other than heterosexual was wrong. For a long time, I'd been feeling like that didn't sit right with me. Yeah. Regardless of whatever my own sexuality was going to be, Um, you know, because, again, being a performer and being in the industry, I knew plenty of people who are outside of the heterosexual world. And it was like, yeah, it it didn't sit well with me. And then I, I mean, I did, I, I had prayed a lot at that time and I did a lot of, a lot of kind of personal searching with God to try and figure out what this is because, I mean, something I learned through the plebiscite especially was there are two, at the time, there were quite prominent Anglican ministers who are of similar age, 
both straight white men, both, I believe, fairly well respected. One of them was someone I'd heard of for quite a long time who, from what I know, studied at the same institution, went through the same kind of courses and programs and everything and became ministers of their own church. Yeah. And during the plebiscite, one of them was asked to leave because he had a different view to the rest of, like, the official Anglican word on the subject. And I'm like... If they're both able to go through the exact same study process and come up with different answers, I felt like almost like what hope did I have? Like even though, yes, I'd read the Bible and I'd been going to church for a very long time, I was like there's obviously logical arguments for both sides of things. And now now I kind of don't know where I am because in – in the the one who was asked to leave has a has a book that I started reading and I keep meaning to go back and borrow it from the library again, um, where he said something about like his major criticism of the church was that they're afraid to change too much because they think of someone's faith as like a damn wall and if you pull out the wrong brick the whole thing comes yeah. tumbling down, um, which ironically I feel is kind of what's happened. To me, but I almost feel like it's the best possible thing because I've kind of sat in the rubble of the life that I had set up so carefully Mm. and carefully then inspected everything of going, what do I actually want to keep and rebuild and what what do I not? Um, And I'm sure there's, there's many conversations I can have with many different people and like going back to the plebiscite for a second, I feel like... I feel like I navigated it quite cleverly because I never actually said what my opinion was. I spoke to a lot of people and when someone thinks that you think the same as them, they're going to be a lot more free with the way they speak to you. And so I feel like I got the luxury of hearing so many different perspectives around that time. Um, But now, yeah, it's it's a hard place to be because I think I don't I mean I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater I do believe that there is something but whether I believe what I used to yeah um and whether like and I'm I think another thing I'm trying to do is separate the divine from the religious structure of humanity. Yeah. Like I feel like humans have been trying to figure this out for hundreds of thousands of years. And something that someone said in a, in a group that I've been a part of is that when someone says God, everyone has a different idea in their head. Mm. And I think that's true. Like even if you go to the same church as someone or you're married to someone or you, you think you think the same way, I feel like, everyone has lots of different connotations when you say the word God and what that actually means for people. And yeah, so I'm still kind of figuring out that spiritual side of my life now, which 10 years ago I would have been 
very confident to tell you what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, and this goes back to everyone's different beliefs and, mm. you know, and, and different perspectives in God. And, you know, as you say, with you know, everyone has whether or not it's a, a man with a white beard. Everyone thinks it's a woman, you know, where, you know, there are so many different ways of thinking of gods. And I think also goes back to my favorite um, history like things where it's like the Greeks, the Egyptians, they had so mm. many different gods. Mm. And they, the way everyone processed, like, you know, when the Aztecs were around, they had their own gods and their gods were like to be like, you know, help our, you know, um, crops flourish. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. And because of the way they lived, part of that was, you know, sacrifice because that was what they believed was the right thing to do. Mm. Now, none of them questioned it, really. Probably some of them did and went, this is probably a bit far-fetched. Um, but the Spanish were the ones who went, no, nah, this is wrong. Mm. And there's a very sense of nowadays, looking back at all this history and going, there are so many different beliefs. There are so many different ideologies. There's so many, like, you know, ways of different, you mm. know, some people believe there's nothing after death. Other people believe there's something, but they don't know what it is. You know, like agnostic, atheist, you know, um, you know, whatever you believe, I feel like it's the the thing that comes down to is how you judge others mm. and how you use that. Like I had, a, I years ago had a like full on debate with one of my friends over um, religion and how religion was in one way a good thing, mm -hmm. but also in another way a really bad thing. And mm. it is, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Like um, you, people just think that religion, and it baffles me a little bit, that they think that religion is the be-all and end-all and they can't ask questions outside of that box. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, life doesn't present that way because mm -hmm. there are so many questions in life that you will never understand and you got to keep asking these questions. And the ministers and everything like, you know, the and, and this is the thing is also because, um, you know, like the whole Vatican angle and everything in Rome mm -hmm. and Cardinal Pell and all those, mm -hmm. you know, situations, <laughs> really dark situations come out and they still get off scot-free because mm -hmm. of the church kind of go, hey, they're fine. <laughs> there is a, there is a kind of like an awful feeling about a lot of families now worried about what happens to children, what happens to people's beliefs and also how there is a lot of darkness about the church which you yeah. know there is a lot of um you know not to say that everything you know has a silver lining but i think you know it's funny when people go and sort of you know when t they talk about scientology mm -hmm. and they think everyone in scientology is a cult i'm like if you take everything down to a fundamental point and you really take it down to everything at base la um, labels and everything mm -hmm. everything you believe is created by someone yeah. and it is always an ideology of someone. So there is a certain element of occultism to it, yeah. whether or not, it, however it forms, if you look at like, and this might be controversial <laughs> to some listeners, it is kind of like the way it is just the idea of a cult is is mostly people think, assume is negative, but it actually just probably means and more likely means just a bunch of people believing in something and trying to get followers mm. and therefore it's just how they get followers but they will stop at nothing to get the said followers and that is what religion kind of does in some regards yeah it and used to be very like that though like back in the holy wars and all that um and believing in something so fundamentally that that you want to protect that and that you yeah. want to you want to protect that over everything else which it's it's amazing what people will do for this promise of eternity and like I was just thinking, I think I, I mean, I do 
there has to be a universal truth. Yes. Like outside of the world, whatever we actually think or believe, there is like one of us somewhere in history is right. Either there is nothing and we all die and that's it, or there is a God or there is a a being or a something and whether someone, anyone on earth has actually interpreted it correctly, we 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 won't know until we die. Yeah. And, (laughs) and, you know, like that is just the long debate of human belief. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think my brother pointed it out very interestingly when he, you know, he he has a podcast as well um, and he's an anthropologist, Mm -hmm. but he studied, um, you know, culture and religion for many years of his uni. And whenever he talked about like he had read the Bible, he'd read the Quran, he had, you know, lived in Iran for, you know, a few years. And he just said, the, the the interesting side of it is going to places and traveling the world and hearing people's different opinions mm. really made him find a belief and find a way of life that he was happy with. But it was always understanding of like when and this is the thing when when people live this sheltered um, and I, I don't want to say everyone lives like this, mm. but when we sort of stick to our box, mm. um, we really don't understand anyone's perspective. And I think when the plebiscite came out. There are a lot of people who did find that they had to question their their beliefs yeah. and their um, and I think it goes to the other side of the coin, which is people. If someone genuinely asks you a question, don't be mad at them for not mm. understanding something, mm. and that is the other side because compassion goes further than being an asshole about it yeah. to someone and going, "Well, fuck you for not understanding my beliefs." It's like no, they're asking. Yeah. They're literally trying to understand. They're not trying to shut you down or anything. They're trying to genuinely understand why you believe that thing because they don't understand why you would. And I feel like everyone's, like, generally people are smart. Like, you <laughs> you can tell, and I could when I was a Christian and I can now, like, I can tell the difference between someone being like, please explain this to me because I don't understand. And yeah. I am asking you this pro- this I am asking this produ- provocative question just to start a fight. Yes. Like, regardless of what that question is. And so I feel like most people are smart enough to be like, I am not touching that question because you're waiting for me to say something that's different to you and yell at me. But I feel like, and same, and I think it's the same with religion, with queer culture, with yeah. everything. Like, you know, even now that I am in, in the LGBT world, A, I don't even know how I define myself. And B, there is so much changing and there are so many people. And like, I do genuinely want to know. I'm like, if you have different pronouns, please tell me A, what they are so I can try and respect you and use them. (laughs) But why? Like, I, and not why as in like, why justify yourself? Like, honestly, like, why? Like, do you tell me? You do you feel like the existing pronouns don't appropriately cover you? Is it that simple, or is it like I'm so curious about other people's lived experience, especially like, especially someone who might be trans or non-binary yeah. or something? Because I like one thing I do know about myself is I'm fairly certain I am cisgender. Like, yeah, I generally don't have any desire to be a man. And that's fine, but I like I cannot imagine what it is like for people to know every second of their life that they're not their body is not right. Yeah, like there are so many different experiences out there that I 
I would love people to be more, I mean, I'm not saying that people aren't because I have lots of very lovely people in Mm. very different areas that are really happy to talk to me about their gender or their culture or their history or whatever. But I think, and I think it happens the same with culture, with Indigenous people, with queer people, with everything that there are people who just want to start a fight and be like, why do we need that? Like, it's been it's been like this forever. And I'm like, but these people have this experience. Like, let us learn from that. Let us become much more open and, yeah. and figure that out. Like, same with different um, abilities and people who have who have a disability. Like, yeah, someone's not being an asshole if they're asking if there's a ramp. It's because they need that for access or if they need translation or an interpreter or... Yeah. Like, there's so much. Like the whole world is so vast. I think I think people forget about, you know, the idea and you know, I've talked publicly about this on on the podcast as well, which is, you know, identity. Mm. And like, you know, and I remember, you know, when I and even the thing like I remember you know, labels to me is just like baffling like everyone wants a label and everyone wants like a category and mm. i think like we i feel like it's a shopping list and everyone wants to fit on a shelf and go somewhere yeah. and you know growing up there was you know always that thing where it's just being like in my head oh i don't know where i sit in you know in the, in the whole spectrum of everything and mm. then you know nowadays i'm just like refer to me however you want because it doesn't really phase me if you call me a he she they i don't mind because for me it doesn't really like identity like in terms of gender doesn't really define who i am mm-hmm. and then it's very much a you know like you know, and i know people who go i would prefer to be called they and i'm like cool they are them and that's like who they are mm-hmm. and but, you know, in terms of everyone else, it's just, you know, finding your comfortability in yourself. And, you know, I've, you know, I've definitely known people who have gone through phase, phases and or have gone and realized who they were. Mm. And I think, you know, this is the thing, like when you're a teenager, you just don't know what's going on. Mm. And then when you get to an adult, you kind of know what's going on. And I'm not saying that teenagers don't know who they are. They do in terms of sometimes, mm. but not. it's you kind of like there's an element where it's like wait until you're kind of you know, have the out in the world. Out in the world and yeah. you're not in school because it really does change your perspective as well. And I remember going to school and being like, no, I like and you know, like it was the same for me. I was like, no, I like girls and that is the only thing I ever like. And that yeah. is I know what they are. And then I got out of school and I was like and I remember this question and being like, you know, being like, oh am I do I like guys? Do I, you know, is this mm. question? And it was always assumed I was gay. Like mm. most of my friends assumed I was gay. And then I was like, no, I really like girls. Like I know I like girls. I also like guys. And when am I going to acknowledge that part of my brain is going to be a later date? And you yeah. know, eventually I did. And you know, lo and behold, everything is fine now. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it really does when you do realize these things, mm. it's sort of like there's a little bit of your head that goes and ticks a box. And I love that metaphor where you're just like, okay, that's done. I can move on. But, um, yeah, there's some people who just, you know, who haven't come out yet publicly, mm-hmm. which is fine. And anyone who doesn't want to come out publicly, you don't have to. Yeah. Um, but just acknowledging who you are, that's the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like some people just don't know where to, you know, where to sit and, you know, like – 
and also who they are and you know they're afraid of trying i don't want to say afraid because i think sexuality and identity is really fluid mm-hmm. i think you will go through entirety of your life not knowing where you sit in this yeah. giant planet um <laughs> but yeah i feel like that is the way that mm-hmm. is the 100% the way that we just kind of think on this plane of society telling us how we need to be and then everyone around us going hang on media tells us that Mm. but in reality we don't actually have to be like that we don't have to be anything that the media says or the advertisement or the anything says and a lot of the time everyone goes oh you know and i think it's always like the thing people in the queer community don't realize there's like you don't have a sign going i'm gay straight you know whatever in uh, in life at all Mm. no one has a sign on them just flashing what uh, you know sexuality they are so a lot of the time people just don't know or unless you say something and you go oh i'm interested in you and then there's always kind of this weird process of just being like oh me too Mm. but i feel like now it's a lot more you know a lot more publicly known of who is straight who is gay who is you know by and all these things mm. a lot earlier on so dating doesn't feel like when we were growing up as terrifying yeah i honestly like i feel like one of the benefits of figuring all this out later in life was that i didn't i didn't then have to be like the only gay girl at school or yeah you know i and for people who did do that at school where they were the only the only queer kid in their class yeah. or the only person who was out or whatever. I think that's incredibly brave because I think a lot of this has to do with like the world you're born into as well. Like your, your family, your friends, your school, your, your whatever, like there's still kids today that there was, I was teaching a drama class and I don't even know how, how, Oh, a, a bunch of the girls were asking me these questions of like, I'd, I'd said partner in the past and generally in situations where I kind of don't know yeah. what the what the norm is, I'd, I'd just say partner and leave it at that. Um, but they were all asking all these questions and they, one of the girls was like, do you have a boyfriend? And I said, no. And someone was like, but you have a partner? And I said, yes. And it was actually interesting how long, like it was only one of them that went, oh. And they were like, what? And they're like, well, and so this girl then like asked me the questions again and was like, so you live with someone? Yes. Do you have a boyfriend? No. But you have a partner? Yes. (laughs) And like ended up having to spell it out to some of the kids, which I think is fine. Like we live in a much better world. And, I, you know, I have one of my oldest friends. They're not married, but she is with another woman and they have three kids. And as those kids grow up, you know, like – they're they're just by existing teaching people yeah. around them because they're like life doesn't always have to be a mommy and a daddy and a but heaven forbid if it does <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh-huh. but like that whole like coming from that world and feeling like heterosexuality was your only option you then like at least me I I feel like looking back I then started wondering like even in like year five camp I haven't even thought about this like for ages but all the girls were lying around and talking about like Prince Harry and boys and whatever and I was lying there being like is there something wrong with me that I'm not also participating in this conversation 
And I mean, <laughs> yes, I probably discovered sexuality in general. Like I wasn't a particularly sexual person until I was older anyway, but I think I thought that there was something wrong with me because I didn't have crushes on people. Like yeah. I made up a crush to someone in like year nine because she asked me which boys at school I liked. And so I picked the guy who I, th- I think um, like perceptively was probably the hottest guy in the class. And well, that backfired because I got to school and everyone knew about it the next day. God, I loved her. Um, <laughs> but I realized that like, and it's not to say that I haven't been interested in guys in the past. I have, and I had a boyfriend at university and things like that. And so, yeah, like I'm not, I don't think, again, I'm not like definitely only into women or definitely only into men either. But I think for a long time, I probably was more interested in women, but then had like shut that off as a possibility yeah. and then was wondering why. I wasn't sitting around with the girls being like, "Oh, which boy do you think is the cutest? <laughs> yeah. That's, there's a, there's an element of that as well. Like I think um, when you really kind of shift that gear and you go, oh. Mm. Um, and I think for me it was because I had so many female friends mm. and I was like, and everyone was like, oh, you're really close to them. Why aren't you dating them? And I was like, oh, I'm just not interested. And I think that was always kind of the thing of just being like, when I liked someone, I would clearly pursue them. And um, I think also when the, I did have crushes on guys, I didn't know what to do about it. It was a very mm-hmm. much like, mm, okay, um, I like them. I'm just going to ignore this. This is a later problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think it, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, and I think growing up and when I did have like bigger crushes on guys, I was like, I remember having dreams. Like I remember that, like dreams when I was in a, teen- a teenager and I would woke up and I was like, okay, I just dreamt about making out with another guy. Mm. I'm about 15. My first brain thought was, oh God, what what's wrong with me as well? Yeah. Like it wasn't even like, and I didn't come from a religious background or anything. I came from a, just a, I don't want to be the different kid. Yeah. I was really worried about being that different kid. And I was like, no, nope, can't like guys. I'm never going to be acknowledging that. And I went straight to school and just, it was like, girls are attractive. Girls are like this. Um, and then, yeah, it's sort of like later on, you sort of put all the pieces together and you mm-hmm. go, okay, well, why did I get along with a lot of queer guys? And why did, like all these things where it's like, I find it so hard to, be friends with guys who don't aren't huggers or aren't affectionate because for me it's baffling yeah. it's such a be loving be free and be all these things and you don't necessarily have to be queer or anything to be like that but mm-hmm. it, it's just the the straight male archetype just grated me but it was sort yeah. of what guys had to be mm-hmm. and i think when i started going oh, okay i like girls and then i was like at dinner with mum and dad and i remember this waiter who was a guy was flirting with me i was like man you're cute but i just remember i was like i haven't come out to my parents and i haven't even acknowledged that i'd come out to myself so i'm just gonna (laughs) bury all of this and move on and mum was like you're being very nice to him and i was like yes yes i am i'm just i'm just a nice (laughs) person yeah (laughs) Yeah. so it's like you know i think when you kind of realize these things in your body then it's Mm. not like I think the thing is also you sort of, you know this as soon as you're like conscious of it. Like oh, yeah. it's, 
<laughs> I think people kind of go, oh, you can change your sexuality. So you can't. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's just who you like is who you like. And that is the way it's yeah. structured. Um, you can you can deny it and not act upon it, which yes. I think, honestly, like I think if I had have kept going down the path I was, it would have kept I feel like it would have just kept coming up for me. Like if I had have said no to Sarah, I feel like there would have been another woman coming up and it would have just been this eternal test kind of thing. But as well, like I see suffering in that, in that path of just like consistently denying it. And, you know, there's a reason why places like Amnesty International are supporting closing down things like gay conversion camps and things like that because it causes pain like it's it's torture and i think i mean it's so it's so heavily entwined with religion and faith and obedience and that promise of something better on the other side if you suffer now and look i i can't I can't promise someone that if they leave all that behind that they that everything's got to be okay. Yeah. Um because again like plenty of people who are like me who've kind of left that behind talk about having that little voice in the back of our head being like are you sure you're right? Like <laughs> are you sure you didn't, you know, like are yeah. you sure you're not going to hell? Like Oh yeah. That's it's- something I feel like I may never get rid of, but in the path that I have been on, like I even, I've even said like, even if I end up going back to that life, Mm. I'm not going to regret now. Yeah. Because of all of this stuff that I've since learned about myself, like I've been able to change every, everything almost from this one thing. And I'm not saying that necessarily anything was holding me back or that, my sexuality again, like as you said, it's it's not the center of who I am. Yeah, like, I got myself a sticker about something like my sexuality isn't the most interesting thing about me. It's from Orphan Black. We can I talk did. about that later. It's oh. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's true. Like my sexuality isn't what defines me. And yeah, I mean, even what you were saying about labels, I feel like I feel like labels have a place, and I, but I also feel like the reason. LGBTQIA plus becomes so long is because more and more people are feeling like the labels that exist don't accurately describe them. Yeah. And so I feel like if someone has defined themselves, I think it's important to respect that because I I don't, again, like you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some labels are helpful and people are very, can often be very proud in the way that they have defined themselves. But don't make an assumption of what someone's definition is. Like Sarah and I especially get a lot of people being like, but you're lesbian. And I'm like, I am with a woman that is different to I am a lesbian. But there are women who are lesbians who are very proud of that fact and I would not want to then rob that of them. But if they have defined themselves as such and given you that. Yes. And said, yes, I would like you to call me that or I like that as my as my descriptor, then please, please use it. But I feel like if someone like you or I is like, 
I don't know, maybe I'll say I'm pans. Yeah. And maybe, but I'm like, I if I have to pick something as opposed to existing, like I feel like we should, everyone should be able to just exist without having to be gay, straight, bi. Yeah. And I, I, and I think it's also like, um, it's such a high school mentality as well. Um, you know, it's that whole idea of, uh, you know, and it's kind of the toxic male culture as well, mm. which I remember as men like especially. A, yeah, <laughs> men, men especially. There's a lot that I feel like men are told they have to be. Yes, and I remember like you know in high school it was like you had to. There was sort of like a oh, if you hadn't lost your virginity at certain ages, and I was like I, that was a mm. big deal for a lot of a lot of boys at high school. It was a big deal. Because when you were considered uncool, that was considered the cool thing to do, at least have slept with a woman. Right. But it wasn't so like... So if you're a loser, at least yeah. if you're not a virgin, you're yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. And it's like very weird mentalities. Most of the people I went to school with ended up coming out. Like, you know, a majority yeah. of people from my group of friends who I knew at school ended up coming out. And I think with all of that, it was very much I, I you know, I, I remember being very much like, oh, I'm not interested in, you know, I didn't want to sleep with anyone. And I was like very much like, no, nah, I'll save myself for a special person. Mm-hmm. And I did. Um, but I was 22 at the time that mm-hmm. happened. And I remember telling, you know, and I've told partners this, but I remember like some of them should have thought, oh, that's really late in life. And I was like, is it though? I feel like. I was older. I, well, <laughs> I mean, like this is the thing as well. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's, this is all the, you know, this is the thing with that. It's all late, you know, societal we have to have slept with someone who when we were 15 and we have to have done this and i think the first time like it's also the first time you ever sleep with any with like i remember my first ever time that i kissed a guy Mm. very very nice like i was like "Mm." (laughs) Mm. um but also a little bit like do i like this do i not like this let me just Mm -hmm. kind of process how this goes and then Happened a few more times, and I was luckily in a very safe, supportive group of people who I knew, and I was like, oh, that's actually, you know. Um, but I f- remembered wanted to take that experience very slow because mm. it was very much out of my knowledge zone. Like yeah. it was felt very new to me. And when I did finally like um, sleep with a guy, it was sort of very much like a slow thing. And I think because they had done it for ages and they, they knew what they were doing, it was a little bit, you know, they were more eager and, you know, just it was different, two different people in two different places. And I was yeah. like, I need this to go very slow because you will scare the shit out of me if, if we go too fast. Because it is it is like you're just trying to adjust your world mentality to be comfortable with who you are as well. Yeah. There's a huge element of that. And mm-hmm. people don't realize that some people slide into that very easily and the other side of people slide into it very slowly. Yeah. Um, like was that like with that with you or was it very much like a – Everything felt very comfortable pretty much from the get-go. Um, some of column A, some of column B. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always a bit of column A, column B. So. Um, there was definitely a thing. I think by the time, like when I met Sarah, I was prepared to not necessarily, like even before I'd met her, mm. um, not necessarily follow the plan that I had. you got to tick those, those boxes, yeah. Exactly, like, you know. Even then I was like, look, I may not save sex for marriage, but <laughs> which, had, which had been my 
expectation for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, because I remember that was a, like an early conversation we mm. even had when we were like eight, 19, 20 mm. to kind of like age range. Yeah, and that was that was a pretty hard and fast rule for a long time. But yeah. I think I got to a point where I was like, I may not save myself for marriage, but it's, at the same time I have waited this long. I'm not going to just like go out and pick anyone at a club and be like cool let's go let's go lose my virginity like let's go to the bathroom stall and say <laughs> exactly exactly and so i think and i mean at, at that time like sarah was actually really great like obviously wanting to know if it was a possibility but not being like cool so now or never like yeah it and she was very very happy to let me kind of dictate of like no I'm not ready yet or okay or you know whatever like there was um I mean there there were times when we got close and I was like I don't know that I'm ready for this and that was fine like at the time which was great because it made me feel safe it made me feel able to explore you know, yes, like we kissed and yes, I liked that. And, you know, able to explore that progression comfortably without feeling that pressure, which I think was nice because, I mean, Sarah is similar to me. She's not exclusively into women, but at the same time, I'm not her first. I wasn't her first girlfriend. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think just as, a, as you said, like adjusting as you went along, like figuring yeah. out, yes, okay, I'm happy here and then going on to my kind of next. Yeah, and it's, it's very, it is a slow kind of thing mm. where, you know, people think that hurdles. And it's the same with like, you know, everyone goes, you know, once you know the mechanics, it's really easy. It's th- th- every new relationship is the same. You've got to take them slow mm. because I feel like the mistake sometimes is rushing. To once yeah. you sort of like, and I used to do this. I used to be one of those people that, you know, would sleep with someone before I dated them. Kind right. Of it was terrible. Uh, so now I've kind of been on the other corner, um, uh, the other side of the um, the shoe, I think it's the term or something like fence? that. Fence? The other side of the fence. That's it. <laughs> um, I was like, which? It's not a shoe. <laughs> um, but yeah, that whole mentality of it, it didn't, you know, it doesn't really matter, mm. you know, to me. Sex, you know, and I remember asking one of my past partners, was like, if we never had sex again, would you still care for me? And she was like, not really. And I was like, okay, that's a that's a big divide between us. Yeah. Um, but for me, sex isn't the be all end all. And I think that a lot of people, it, you know, and I think for some people it can be, mm. but it's definitely not the be all and end all. It's nice. Mm. Sex is great when it happens and when you love someone. But it also kind of wears thin when you don't care for someone. It's yeah. yeah. There's a huge like divide. And I think when you realize that sex is there for care mm. versus sex there, you know, is there for a completely um different thing. It's like um my partner summed it up with perfectly. She said, mind, um, heart, body, which I thought was nice. the best way to kind of sum up how you think. Because if your mind's not committed, but your heart and body are, then don't do it. Yeah, but if right. all three have to be together in it for you to move forward. And I thought, mm. that's really smart because a lot of people just go, body wants it, go wild. Yeah. I, and look, again, this is We're all, guilty all personal like all personal experience, but yeah. I definitely think sex is much more than mechanics. Yes. It's like, 100% more mechanic. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I know that 
like if and people do and they can and some very much enjoy just the mechanics of your heart you want you're into it i'm into it let's go and never see each other again <laughs> bye now and if that's uh, your style that's your style yeah. i honestly think that even even if i should find myself single again i don't feel like that's my style at all yeah um and i feel like i feel like it's an important thing i feel like it's good when as you say like the mind heart body thing i quite like that analogy too like when it does help to make a couple closer and yeah. and things but i think it is way more than mechanics because i think it's easy for the same thing to physically happen twice but the experience to be really different yeah um and i think even with like with my background and that's something else i'm working through like i have a lot of complexes i think still kind of buried deep about about sex and about what it is and about what it should be should in inverted commas um which again is i think more and more i like in every kind of aspect of my life i used to i used to think that there was a right way for everything and i was like am i doing this right is everything you know should i be doing this at all like all of that kind of stuff and i think one of my friends, Lou, says there is no universal rule book. Yeah. And I like that. There is no universal rule book. And it's for figuring out, obviously, if we're talking about sex, then you should probably include your partner in this, in that discussion of figuring things out. But like... And if you're not, I'm shamed at you. Like, <laughs> here, I sprung a whole textbook on you and good luck. Um, but yeah. yeah, like in every aspect of my life, just like figuring out what's right like what yeah what works for you and which way forward and yeah <laughs> i think i think it's also like you know we talk about these mental hurdles mm. and everything and that comes down to just like mental health and how we cope with all of that mm-hmm. and like we'll chat a bit about that as well because i feel like that really impacts a lot of people's decisions on how, where they feel comfortable on the spectrum of it all. And, you know, yeah. and I think a lot of what was holding me back was poor mental health and not knowing and, you know, and even, you know, like having partners who were jealous of the fact that I was comfortable in my own, you know, more in my own skin. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like a mental hurdle, um, yeah. you know, that I think a lot of people don't realise you've got to be, you know, your other half has to kind of, in a way, accept you for also who you are, your faults and your good parts. Like, Mm. you know, because everyone is not perfect. And I think that this is the thing that gripes me about relationships. Yeah. Don't walk in there with an idea of how it's meant to be. (laughs) Experience it. Just let it go. Because the moment Mm. you try and change something of someone, the more you're going to put up walls between the yeah, two of you because sure. it's really clear communication has to go into it. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be about from understanding of both perspectives. And just, you know, I don't think, you know, and I've dated with people with mental health issues as mm-hmm. well and my own mental health issues. And I think when you have mental health issues, no matter what they are, whatever capacity they are, be open and clear about the communication because that is one thing that a lot of people just aren't. They go, oh, okay, this week I'm not feeling great. Um, What am I going to do about it? I'm going to talk to my partner saying I'm not feeling that great. It's not on you. Mm. 
this has nothing to do with you. So you don't, you know, but if I need something from you, I might ask, you know, yeah. for you to do me something. I think that's a much more mature thing than blaming the other person for everything yeah. that's happened. And so not saying that everyone is like this, but that has happened in some relationships for people and some that I've experienced. So there's, there, you've got to also be kind of like a weirdly responsible for yourself. And yeah. mental health is something that people don't realize. There's actually something they can actually also control. Mm-hmm. Um, like with your own mental health and, you know, everything that's going on, I think you've done incredibly well with, you know, yeah, trying to stay afloat of it all. Does it yeah. feel like a very, you know, because you sometimes talk about mental health and, you know, yeah. especially Sarah is a big advocate for mental health mm-hmm. and, and well-being now on Instagram and to check out Sarah's Instagram as well because yeah. I'm love reading all those things. But, um, yeah, it's one of those things that you don't hear about when people talk about mental health. They kind of bury it up for a long mm-hmm. time and then go, nope, life is too difficult for it to hear externally. Yeah, and I think that's something that I – want to kind of challenge myself yeah. in a bit more um I mean I guess there's kind of two things there like with relationships and mental health like it takes a level of self-awareness that I still don't think I possess even though I feel like I'm a relatively self-aware person because there'll be days where I'm like so whingy and so like needy and somewhere in the back recesses of my mind I'm almost like expecting Sarah to just fix it for me yeah when I don't even really know what's going on myself like and I think it does take that as you say like that level of responsibility of being like this is my own shit (laughs) I'm kind of expecting you to just magically fix it when I don't even really know what's triggered me I'm just sitting in it um but in general I feel like I feel like mental health can and should be and I think a lot of a lot of people are kind of coming out in that respect as well talked about more. Yeah. And being open about and it's super complicated and especially in especially in creative mm. circles as well like so few people talk about it. And I think um especially I mean, I don't know how many people from other areas of the arts hear things like this, but I think as a performer, you don't hear this in in the context of mental health, but you do hear the idea of that there's like 20 girls lined up behind you for this same job. Like if you can't do it, one of them will. So like work harder or, or whatever. And so I think that has then led to performers in general not talking about mental health because if it gets out that, you know, that the this person has mental health issues that maybe they won't get a role or they won't get yeah. hired or they, you know, they're like, oh, it's too too much effort to hire that person because she's got depression or whatever and she might take a show off. But you're like, yeah, but, you know, someone who gets migraines or someone who has any other number of physical illnesses might also take a show off. I mean, I'm sure people who who have those things are also concerned about not being hired 100%, because of, yeah. of whatever. And I, But I think that leads to even worse mental health because people <laughs> feel like they can't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and for me especially, like another reason I've done less performing lately is because 
and I've I've taken kind of a couple of breaks from it over the past few years and I'm slowly working my way back now because yeah. I am realizing that I love performing and I really I really want to do a professional musical I really do I can't audition really I can't do it like I've done it I went to one a couple of weeks ago but I have had enough experiences where no matter what's happened I I've just I've I've seriously can count on like one hand how many times I've walked out of an audition and be like yeah I nailed that wow um and all the mental health baggage that kind of comes around that like again I'm slowly working my way back to it and I'm picking kind of shall we say like smaller they I mean half of them aren't small but they're not like yeah. big big professional productions oops <laughs> um <laughs> just knocked something over um to audition for to kind of warm me up to that and I've again purposely chosen a singing teacher who has turned out to be perfect for me in more ways than one yeah um because she also has a whole series of things but so much experience and is quite a well-respected performer in her own right but I feel like can help me balance between now where I'm just wanting to reclaim the joy and the freedom and that passion but also has the know-how and the ability to help me in a next step should I be ready to get there um and I'm kind of battling that by by making it more for myself like my last audition I went to I wasn't I don't feel like I was completely able to achieve this but the goal was to walk in there and do it for me, not yeah. for them and not to be the person I felt like they wanted or whatever. Like I still don't even really know what it is about about auditioning because I I mean, I know theoretically what it is, but like not actually what happens in me and what the actual block is. But put me on a stage, like if you say that next week you've got a slot for me to do a cabaret at whatever venue and I can prepare 10 minutes on whatever, I might be a little bit nervous, but I can get up, I can do my set, I can yeah, I have almost no issue. Like same with when I was doing that play that I mentioned before that I was casting with Sarah. Like, yeah, you get that those butterflies and the, the regular amounts of like excitement before a performance, but... I don't feel like I'm detrimentally affected on stage Yeah. Um, very often. I mean, it happens, but not to the point, not to the same level as like auditioning. I just can never perform at my best there. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Like, um, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't think necessarily like any of what you've said is wrong because I, I, I completely understand where you're coming from as well. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's something which took me away from acting as well was mm. I had the idea of auditioning. I just mm. didn't like it. It was nerve-wracking to me. But I love performing. And it's one of those things that, you know, you kind of when you know your groove and when you know things, you're comfortable in it. But yeah. it has to be, you know, as you say, there's this huge queue. There's always someone there better than no and the word better is such a negative connotation Mm -hmm. like um 
there's so many different people who audition for roles and audition for everything that you are just going to present everything differently. You've always got to just challenge you yourself as a performer. Yeah. And I think it's a challenging thing, but it's also just create, you know, what you want to see and what you want to be in because yeah. your own legacy is what you make of it. And mm-hmm. I think that's very important for people to understand. And I think there's a huge, like I say this to every guest, I'm like making it is such a, you know, such a different thing yeah. for everyone. Yeah. And for me, like, you know, people go, oh, you've, you're so busy and you're doing everything, you you know. And I'm like, to me, I've already like, you know, I haven't done enough. Yeah. But, you know, people just go, but you're doing everything. And it's like there's no comprehension of like no. where you are versus how other people see you. It's a separate identity and it will always be that because our self ideas of how we approach things and um, how much we put effort in and work in mm. will always be different to how people see us do it and go oh actually they did heaps of work and you go really did I do enough like, <laughs> mm. you know and that's yeah. just the mentality we have I think especially creative people as well like we're also honed and I look I don't know if other people think this too but I feel like we're also kind of trained to always be looking for the next thing like you know we're not satisfied almost with the work we've done on whatever like I mean some people are but I feel like there's always like okay so what's the next project what are we working on now what's what's coming and I don't know if that's because there is such a feast famine thing in the creative world where you'll either be you know one week you'll be working I don't know, for a syndicated television show and being paid all the time and then that television show will end or the film that you're on will end or the play that you're in will finish its run or yeah. whatever and you're like, cool, so where's my next paycheck coming from? Let's find another thing. But, um, yeah, I'm learning more and more now and I'm trying to apply this to every area of my life but obviously in performing and auditioning and things is like for a lot of my life, I've been so worried about doing the right thing, the right way, the yeah, whatever it is. Um, and I can still see one of my university lecturers kind of telling me off for looking at her while we were doing an exercise. And she's like, stop checking if you're doing it right. Just, just do, do it. it. Like, but I feel like I've kind of tied that in with, so someone Sarah says something called worrying means you suffer twice. Yeah. And being a being someone who's so worried about whether I'm doing it right, I end up constructing my audition, my performance, my whatever, like anything. It doesn't even have to be in terms of creativity. My life to fit what I think potentially people around me would say is right. Yeah. And I'm now slowly coming to the the realization of like, if I work my butt off to do something that is right and then get told in some way or another that it was wrong, I then, I not only suffer because I did it wrong, but I suffer because I was following some sort of invisible expectation. Yeah. That at least if I am doing something my way, I have made the decision, I have owned it. And then if I've done something wrong, I can own it properly as opposed to being like, oh, I thought I was meant to do it this way or whatever. 
And so like not getting into a show can be okay if I've like, I've prepared this audition the way I think it needs to be done. And if that's not what they want, then that's okay. Rather than preparing an audition to please them for it to be a way that they, like I think that they want and then not getting it, I feel like I've failed twice in a way because yeah. I failed to hit their expectation and then I failed to get in or whatever it and is. And you're failed, you're like, yeah. It's, <laughs> that's, a, that's another double-edged sword. Like there's no, way of, there's no way of winning that, but it's also like something that I think a lot of people need to understand mm-hmm. that that is actually a very valid and I like that idea a lot, you know, just in terms of, um, and it goes back to the whole idea of make something for you mm. and make your I own say, work. Make your own work. It's important because, you know, people go, why do you do all the fun? You know, why do you do all these things? Not for pay because it's just nice and it's fun and I get to hang with friends. And that is realistically, at the end of the day, like being a kid in a sandbox. Yeah. And we've got to, you know, as adults, stop trying to pretend that we're not just big kids yeah. because there is a huge, mm-hmm. huge problem with society being like we have to be these serious individuals. And realistically, we've got a finite life in these bodies. Make the most of it. And yeah. you don't know when that's going to end. Um, and there's this illusion that adults know everything right yeah, like when you're don't. a kid you you think that when you're an adult you magically know how things work because adults are the one that tell you not to touch something because it's hot and that seems to make sense and so you're like adults know everything and then finally you become an adult and you're like so when do I get to know all these all the things and you don't <laughs> like when do I get the book that says every rule on the existence of exactly. life exactly so yeah, treating yourself well and like as you say, like doing all those things. It might not be for money, but it's flexing those creative muscles. It's mm. I've I've this year, the beginning of this year, I joined a group of people from all over the world going through Julia Cameron's book, um, oh, The Artist's yeah. Way, which yeah. if you're creative and you've heard of it and you've never investigated it, do it. Seriously. I bought the book ages ago because someone recommended it to me and it sat on the shelf until one of my friends said, I'm going to start a book club. Let's do it. And it's been fabulous because I've met these amazing people and there's people from three major time zones. There's one in the one in London, three, four, at least four in the kind of New York state and another four in Australia. And other than the experience of being with them, like going through this, and she talks about that, like, find things to do that would delight your inner eight-year-old and like treating your artist with love and care because it is a hard world to be a creative person like it's yeah I can't recommend it enough honestly message me if you want me to tell you more (laughs) (laughs) that's like this is just the most uplifting uplifting thing because I think more people need to need to find books and inspiration like that Mm. Um, and that is also going to be the point I'm going to wrap us up on. But that okay. was amazing. <laughs> yes. Well, definitely message me if you want to know yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. So then my final question before we go is where can people find you on socials? Because you obviously do have socials. I do. Um, I have a series that I'm now 
wondering if I need to pull them back together. So my Instagram is probably the best way to reach me. It's Alexandra LC1989. Um, I also have another thing that I kind of speared off and created and now I'm not sure where it lives, which is Love is Green blog, um, which was a kind of sustainability creative thing that I sometimes put craft and knitting and sometimes put like green tips. And I, like I said, I don't know where it lives now, but <laughs> it'll be there. But I'm going to turn my personal one into my producer's one when I set up that. Company I'm, as well. <laughs> I'm so excited. And I'm also like, I'm excited for the radio play. I'm excited for everything you're doing because I keep hearing about it personally as well. But I mean, like, professionally also, it's just amazing to see you still doing stuff after 10 years of knowing you. It's just. You too. I know. It feels. <laughs> it was like before we even recorded, we were both just like, huh, we've done so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which kind of just makes, you know, that whole reflection of when someone's known you as long as you know like you've met all these other people and everything and then you've known someone for almost 10 years and they're going oh crap i actually haven't done a lot and you just don't it doesn't click until someone else says it and you're like yeah mm, now that was valid coming from you no one else because <laughs> everyone else hasn't known me for a space like the amount of time mm. and i think th- th- knowing the foibles and frustrations is a completely different thing yeah um, but thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah. It has been great. Um, and if you want to tune in for more episodes, please feel free to find them on Spotify or Apple Podcast. And uh, yeah, tune in next week for another guest and I'll speak to you all later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.